Hello, and welcome to the Double Double. My name is Kelly Hogan, and joining me from Brooklyn, David Dixon. David, how are you? Kelly, I'm doing great. It's been a it's been a long time, but we've had some stuff going on, some exciting developments, mainly on on your end. Some some exciting things that we're gonna get into. But I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm a little upset we haven't been able to speak to the audience for the past couple of weeks. We've been busy, like you mentioned. I started a new job. I know you're wrapping up your internship, and I was out in Columbus last weekend for TBT. Yeah. So so that's kind of what what I want to get right into is so just break it down to the people kind of what is tbt so tbt it stands for the basketball tournament it is exactly what it sounds like a basketball tournament where the winning team receives two million dollars and so basically it's it's set up very similarly to the nca tournament in that it's 64 teams and there's a bracket but how the NCA tournament, there's four regions. In TBT, there are eight. And so I was the general manager for Team Big X, and we played out of the Columbus region. It's really just a basketball tournament, but there are some quirky rules, one of them being the Elam ending. So in this tournament, we play four nine-minute quarters, but in the fourth quarter, when the first whistle is blown under four minutes, the game clock is turned off and there are eight points added to the leading team score. And then basically the first team to get to that number wins. So for example, if the score is 70 to 60 at the first whistle stoppage under four minutes, the first team to 78 points would win the game. The thought process behind it is that there's a winning basket in every game. And by playing this way, it avoids the fouling because the clock is no longer a a factor. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that's definitely a quirky thing that's only at at TBT, but I want to go back a little bit. So so we're going to work backwards. So how did you get involved with with Big X? Because I hate to bring it to the listeners, but uh, you didn't go to a Big Ten school. You went to Wes. I went to West. I did not go to a Big Ten school. You're right about that. Harry Rafferty, friend of the pod, former guest, reached out. And at the time, he was actually playing. He was planning to play. And since then, he's had some developments. He's now going to be a graduate assistant for the Michigan women's basketball team. So shout out, Harry. Shout out, breaking Wolverines. Breaking news. Breaking news. Breaking news, right. I don't know if it's official yet, but starting August 1st, I believe, is his first day. So he's looking forward to that. But so he asked me to... You know, because he, he initially he was playing and he kind of started to formulate the team, do all the logistical work and came to the conclusion that he couldn't do both. And so he reached out to me and said, hey, would you have any interest in helping to kind of set things up, help us figure out roster construction? There's a ton of player profiles you have to make, social media, you have to you know, tweet out, put it on Instagram or, or snap face as Bill Belichick says, face chat. <laughs> and so I, I, it, was, it was a lot of that. But between Harry, Andrew Dockett, who served as our head coach, we were pretty much communicating daily from, I'd say, May 1st through June 1st, just trying to figure out different guys' situations. And it was it was definitely challenging because Summer League played a factor so, for instance, we had two guys, Paris Lee and Jay Sean Tate, who, 
you know, are both fantastic players. Paris played in the summer league for the Grizzlies. Jay Sean played for the Nuggets. And they performed so well that Paris signed a contract overseas in Belgium for close to a million dollars a year. And, and Jay Sean is trying to make it in the NBA. So he was with Oklahoma City working out the weekend that we played. So unfortunately, he couldn't play with us. So do you have a lot more respect for, for the great recruiters in in college sports for how they're able to go about constructing rosters? Because if you think about Calipari and Coach K now do this every year. Yeah, it's exhausting. It is exhausting. <laughs> so we had 10 guys and then two of them dropped out, Paris and Jay, Jay Sean, JT. And then we had to go get a couple more. But just in terms of staying on them and making sure they kind of knew logistically where we were at, it's not that important of a decision, right? Like, who are you going to play TBT with? It's not, where am I going to go to college? But it's it's a grind, and it's just tiresome. And it gave me certainly an appreciation for that, but also just kind of the, the sideshow that is college basketball and that a lot of what they have to focus on is not even pertaining to basketball per se. A lot of it is where are we going to eat? Where are we going to stay? What's just a lot of logistical stuff. And I guess if you're a general manager, that's probably the case in the NBA as well. But a lot of my duties did not even really revolve around basketball. I was trying to make sure everyone was getting to Columbus on time. Everyone knew where we were staying, trying to gather the money to pay for the airbnb buying the airbnb food it was it was a lot of stuff that didn't even have to do with basketball and it was it was certainly a great experience but um i I didn't expect that going in so so let's stick with the basketball because that other stuff you know that that just comes with with the job and you'll definitely learn a lot about logistics but with the basketball recruiting side of it unlike college basketball kelly the tbt is the winner, the winning team, as you said, gets two million dollars. So, and that money gets split between the players. So, when you're recruiting guys, you can, in, in theory, offer them money, right? Like, if you play with us and we win, like here's how much money you would get. So it's kind of like money was a factor of your recruiting pitch. So, so what was your pitch for these guys? Was it just the money they would win, or the connection to to the Big X, or connection to to you guys? Like, like how do you go about like say that you know I'm you know what one of the players you want and you're and you're calling me and you have to convince me to come join big x so to be honest i didn't discuss money with a single one of them it was more so the exposure so we went the exposure route because when you're talking tbt you know money's already involved so these guys know if they show up and perform and i mean you have to win the tournament because you can make it all the way to the championship and if you lose you're leaving with the same prize as the team that lost by 30 in the first round. So it's winner take all. And for a lot of these guys, it was not even about the money. It was about the exposure. Playing on Friday night, I think our game was on ESPN2. And then Saturday afternoon, we played primetime ESPN. So that was you know good exposure for some of these guys. A lot of them play overseas and aren't on top of mind for a lot of basketball fans. And I mean, hopefully this changed it a little bit or gave them a little bit of exposure that they wouldn't otherwise have gotten. But we just kind of went the the uniform approach where everyone, if we were to win, was getting 150000 each player. Um, you know, that's that's a lot of money for winning six basketball games. So I don't know if any of them could really complain about that. But I know some teams do try to entice some players who maybe otherwise wouldn't play by offering them three, four, five hundred thousand. Gotcha. So... 
that sounds like you and Doc are, are really committed to, to the team vision. So getting the, the guys to play. So so once they were all in Columbus, right, you guys had to practice before your first game. So, so what was practice like? Because these are all guys who maybe have never played with each other. They may have a connection to Ohio State or other Big Ten schools. But a lot of times they might not have been teammates, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in these tournaments, chemistry is a big thing. You know, a lot of the teams that come in year in and year out and have success, like Bayheim's Army, which is the Syracuse alumni team, Carmen's Crew, the Ohio State alumni team, a lot of these other teams, they're guys who have played together for years and years and years. So in our case, we had we had a pair of teammates, CJ Jackson and Keyshawn Woods from Ohio State, who had familiarity and had played together. But outside of that, I don't think many of these guys even knew each other. And yeah, they're all very, very high-level basketball players, but there still has to be some cohesion and some chemistry. So what we did was our first game was on Friday night. We had everyone out there by Wednesday. And Wednesday and Thursday, we went through sets. Guys got shots up. They lifted weights if they needed to and really just got familiar with each other. Friday afternoon, we had our shoot-around, and then uh, it was ready for game time. We played the West Virginia Wildcats in the first game. Yeah, and so you guys won that game. I was very impressed. You guys looked good. for. I didn't know you guys had very little practice time, so I'm even more impressed. But going into that game, you guys were the four seed in the Columbus Regional, right? So did you talk to, to the CEO of TBT about how they go about seeding teams? Because it seemed very, you know like random in, in terms of the seedings because you guys had a loaded roster. Justin Sears, two-time Ivy player of the year, played overseas now in Germany. You got Boo Paolo who's playing in the G League. You got all these Ohio State guys who are awesome in college and now playing great overseas. Amir Bell was the defensive player of the year at Princeton. Like you guys had dudes, right? So like how were you guys a four seed? I agree. I mean, they have a really tough job. I was talking to John Mugar before our game. He's the CEO and president of TBT, I think is his title. But I was just asking him basically that exact question. How did you formulate these seeds? How do things change? Because in our specific instance without Paris and Jay Sean, you know, how does it, how would we have been seeded had our roster initially not had those guys? And what he said that surprised me a little bit was he actually thought we would have been a higher seed. He said maybe a two or a three seed, given how all the other rosters kind of shaped out. Because, I mean, for instance, the team we played, they didn't have Pierre Henry, who is a point guard and plays for Basconia in the EuroLeague. He missed his flight, and the flight that he aborted landed at 7 p.m., but the game was at 7 p.m., so obviously he couldn't play. But that's, I mean, that's just kind of the nature of this tournament. Everyone understands that, you know, the seeding might not be necessarily accurate, but they do as as good of a job as they can. You guys kind of got lit up by a couple of those guards on the, on the West Virginia team. Those guys could shoot, man. John Elmore, David, you remember that, you remember that Marshall team uh, that made the Sweet 16 a couple years ago? Oh, yeah. John Elmore was their best player, and he's the only player in NCAA history to score 2,500 points and record 750 assists so the dude's a hooper and i didn't really appreciate his talent until i saw it in person and just to see the type of shooter that he is here's a guy who played summer league i believe it was with the celtics 
and he couldn't even stick on an NBA roster and you see what he can do shooting off of the bounce off of the catch his creativity it's incredible and it just reminds you how difficult it is to make it in the NBA I mean, if just watching anyone on that court, it's they all. It felt like almost everyone here. Oh, he played summer league with this team. He was a second round pick. They still have this draft rights. It, it's amazing just how it makes you appreciate just how good the guys in the NBA are. It really does. And in this specific game, I mean, Elmore came out hot early, and we we fell back on our heels. It was fifteen to two before you could really even like blink. And Doc called timeout, and we kind of regrouped, but early. They gave us a little bit of a scare, but I mean, honestly, I wasn't too concerned at that point just because we were getting good shots. We just weren't hitting them. But I mean, Justin Sears had a big second half, our Ohio State duo of Keyshawn Woods and CJ Jackson. They both played really, really well. And then uh, Sears had a big free throw at the end and, and kind of moved on to Saturday. Yeah. So so I want to talk about the the Elam ending for a second because as I've watched it you could see some teams who have played the TBT a lot clearly have a strategy for going about it because it is a unusual ending right there's no other league or tournament that that uses it so how so did you guys prepare for it knowing that hey if we're up and we're getting close at four minutes like are we going to trigger the Elam ending like what if we're down like how do you guys go about strategizing for for the Elam ending I mean the Elam endings are really really cool way to end a basketball game i think it's probably too radical to be adopted across all levels of the game but it also takes some strategy as well and kind of like you said triggering the elam ending it's obviously easier in any basketball game when you're winning so the strategy if you're winning is as soon as the clock goes under four minutes if you have the ball you use a timeout because then the eight points is initiated and there's no more back and forth and you guys kind of control your fate in that sense and then defensively if you have fouls to give which is i mean probable given that you will have only played five minutes into the fourth quarter and you're on defense you would foul and for the same purpose as calling a timeout offensively you stop the clock and instigate the start to the elam ending if you're trailing you kind of hope that the other team doesn't have that figured out but at this point it's kind of just conventional wisdom and and the approach is whoever's winning either calls timeout or fouls under four minutes interesting yeah because it's a unique approach especially because you know Dockage is a great young coach but he's a graduate assistant right now at Ohio State he hasn't been a head coach of many teams yet so and then you get like this brand new strategy that it's like a lot of you guys as players you, you aren't used to, you know, so or you could a lot of film to watch on TV. I want to go off on a little tangent here for a second. So you just brought up Andrew Dockage. Great guy. Great coach. A lot of collaboration with him over the past couple months. There's not a doubt in my mind that that dude's going to be a head coach someday, like at a either a big time college program or really wherever he wants to be. He's. He's got such a good personality. He knows what he's talking about, and he's just a great communicator, and just he's head coaching material. I, I just wanted to say that. Wow, love to hear it. Heard it here first on the double-double. But uh, so, so you win that first game, right? So you successfully navigate the Elam ending, 
But this is like a Division Three NESCAC weekend, right? You got a back-to-back. So what did you guys do right after the game? Was it, was it right to the cold tub? Was it right to get food or right to bed? Was there a scout? Was there film? It's exactly like a NESCAC weekend. 7 o'clock on a Friday, and then we were back at 2 o'clock on Saturday. Really, after the game, we just showered up. There were some media requests. They wanted to talk to a couple players. And then guys kind of went their separate ways and, and, and found stuff to eat. But we need to be back by noon to play Carmen's Crew, which is Ohio State's alumni team, who was well represented in terms of fan support, given that they were playing in their own backyard, essentially, at Capital University in Columbus. So now, was there a lot of friendly trash talk between the Ohio State alumni team and Carmen's crew and your team, Big X, who had a lot of Ohio State alumni? There was a little bit. I wouldn't say it was it was friendly. And then Ohio State had a couple guys chirping because Andrew Dockage did. He's a coach at Ohio State now, as I mentioned. So there was a little chirpage going on between them. But I mean, this Ohio State team, they were loaded like absolutely loaded. Aaron Kraft, John Diebler, David Lighty, LaQuinton Ross. The day we played them, William Buford. Uh, do you remember him, Dave? Of course. Could not miss a shot. Six of six from three, hitting shots that NBA players would have been impressed by. We were within one at the half, and then we went small and they went large and started hitting the glass, and, and we just couldn't recover. Yeah, you know, I, I, I was watching the, the stream, and it was a tough one, but uh, a lot of turnovers. And, but there's also so much you could do. As, what was what you said. These, these guys are hitting a lot of threes. Diebler was hitting threes. Kraft hit a couple shots, and Buford really had a game. But was there one player in your weekend in Columbus who you watched between all the games who you said, how is this guy not on an NBA roster? Ah, geez. There were a couple guys that really impressed me. I liked, I don't even know his first name, but there was a kid, Oliver, who was playing on Dayton. He's a lefty wearing some crazy headband. Duke and hoop. Boo Boo Palo, who was a teammate of Harry Rafferty's up in Sioux Falls with the Sky Force. Just spending some time with him and, you know, hanging out, talking with him. I really enjoyed it. Like, he's a great dude. I know Harry spoke very highly of him, and I can I can kind of see why he gets he gets excited talking about certain stuff, and his eyes get all wide, and he loves basketball. So I, I really really enjoyed being around him. In terms of like next year, we got to start doing the roster construction way earlier because by the time we got to it, we, we would ask some guys, and they would say, "Oh yeah, I totally would have been interested, but I already committed to." team so-and-so or I'm already I already gave so-and-so my word that I'd play with them so I think if we get on them earlier you know we'll have a better chance next year and given our situation this year had we beaten Carmen's crew I think the winner of that game was going to win the region anyway because Dayton had six guys their tank was on E Carmen's crew they you know took our lunch money on, on Saturday but I wouldn't say that I I, I wouldn't say that they took your lunch, but you, you, you guys were up 10 in the third quarter. You know, you guys were playing really well, and, you know, they just got hot at the right time. But I am so happy to hear that there's going to be a next year. I, I, I can't wait. Maybe we'll start doing some podcasts on the road. I, you know, I couldn't take the time off from work. You know, interns can't really ask for time off, you know? Yeah, no, I feel that's that. Not a, that's not the impression you, 
you want to leave. And also, you know, maybe I'll even be involved next year, depending on, uh, you know, what, what happens. Cause you have to sign away your eligibility. And I, and I was not prepared to do that yet. No, we don't, we don't want to do that, but we could, we could definitely use you recruiting David. We'll see what's in the cards, but so we're going to take a quick break and then coming up, you know, we've had a lot of time now. Free agency ended about a month ago, really. And so we've had a lot of time to really digest everything. So coming up after a short little break, we're going to, we're going to kind of recap free agency, go through a little more of a deep dive on some moves that we really liked and just kind of, you know, winners and losers. And Kelly and I give a lot of predictions. So where we were right and where we were wrong. So Kelly, the last podcast we did with Jeff, where we talked about football a lot, we did a lot of you know preseason football. While we were recording, was the Russell Westbrook trade broke? Russell Westbrook for Chris Paul, and so we did a little bit. We re-recorded we did a little bit at the top, and now we've had some time to digest it. What are your deeper thoughts? You know, now we've had time to to analyze deeper analysis of the Russ CP3 blockbuster. Initially, I didn't love it from the Rockets' perspective. But the more I think about it, I think it has a chance. James Harden and Russell Westbrook are both very ball-dominant players. Harden had the second-highest usage rate last season, and it was only behind Russell Westbrook's 2016-2017 season in which he won the MVP. That was the year Kevin Durant left to go to Golden State. But I mean, call me crazy, but I, I really think this could work the more I think about it. Harden plays off the ball a little bit more. Maybe you treat Westbrook not like Giannis, but just surround him with shooters like Giannis has been surrounded. And one of those shooters could be James Harden, but find a way to stagger their minutes. Westbrook's going to have to become a better shooter as he ages. And I think that's in the cards. The dude works hard. He's been able to kind of rely on his athleticism but that's gonna that's gonna change shortly so the more i think about this deal the more i like it for the rockets with chris paul they might have had a chance in the western conference there's more variance now that they added westbrook but i think their ceiling is now higher that's an interesting point because especially about the shooting because i think personally it is easier to become a better spot-up shooter just like catch and shoot than shooting off the dribble. I think shooting off the dribble is a lot harder to do, which is why what Steph and James Harden are able to do is just so impressive, just the way they can shoot from so far away off the dribble. And I think maybe seeing Westbrook not have to take every shot off the dribble and create for his own, but have someone else create for him almost might be able to help him in his shooting percentages and making more threes. But I also think that it's an the Rockets made a good move because in case Harden does get hurt or in case, let's say, Westbrook gets hurt. The other guy can carry the team until they get back. And Chris Paul, you know, they, they were still good, but it was very different when, when Harden went down or where Harden was out. Like you're having Chris Paul lead lead the team, and that's not really that sustainable over a long period of time. Like you could still be a really competitive team in the West with just one of those guys. And if it was just Chris Paul in a scenario, I don't think that would have been that successful. That's fair. And from Oklahoma City's perspective, if you're Sam Presti, are you trying to move Chris Paul or are you trying to have him play that 
mentor role to Shea Gilgis Alexander. I was surprised that they weren't able to deal him right away because I do think Chris Paul does have a lot of value left. I think if he went to Miami, he would have been really good or Minnesota. But I'm also not surprised because his contract is really big. And by the time that he got traded, I forget who mentioned this, but I was listening to something where they were at a downside because they the trade happened after the moratorium ended. So players were able to officially sign their free agent contracts. And once they sign, you can't be traded for a certain number of days. So like there was just fewer teams that had the available players to to give back because a lot of the times the salaries that would have matched those guys those contracts could be traded until I think December. So I do expect him to not make it to the trade deadline still on the Thunder. But just in terms of their haul, now I've had a lot of time to to think about it. Are we sure that these first round picks like obviously it's a lot of first round picks, but are we sure that it's as good of a haul as we're getting? Because you see two of the smartest teams in the league where their best run teams with Jerry West, with the Clippers and Joe Moore with the Rockets giving away all these picks. Are we, are we sure that we're not overvaluing the first round picks as a part of just our fear of another Celtics net situation? I think first round picks are being overvalued, especially in this instance with the thunder, because these picks are coming through the Heat and the Rockets and the Clippers, three teams that probably aren't going to be towards the bottom of the league or in the lottery. And even if they were, now with the revamped lottery odds, just because the team is terrible doesn't guarantee that they're going to have a high pick. And that, in conjunction with the fact that when a lot of these picks convey, high schoolers are now going to be allowed to be drafted, it just adds a lot more volatility to an already very volatile process that's the draft and it's just you know when 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 you think about it three of the best executives in the league are the ones giving up these picks and pat riley jerry west and daryl morey so it just makes you wonder if what do they know that we don't you know like if they aren't valuing first round picks in the same way is that the new market inefficiency kind of is is that where you should be exploiting of trying to give away first round picks to get established players because somehow with as you said the new lottery odds or just the high school players entering the draft now or or probability of that happening it's just become a lot harder to hit on those picks when they were in the past all right so let's pivot to los angeles because i think those are two of the biggest winners of the offseason do you want to talk about the clippers or the lakers first uh let's go with the la la land let's go with the lakers uh so i'll admit it i was i was wrong uh, I said that they'd be signing Kyrie Irving, and they did not. So I'll, I'll admit I was I was wrong on this one. But so the Lakers got LeBron. They obviously saw LeBron. They traded for Davis. That did go through. They signed Boogie Cousins, but they by waiting so long on Kawhi, they took themselves out of a lot of other free agents who probably would have really helped them. All right, David, if you're going to fall on your sword, I got to fall on mine too. I thought there was going to be a little reunion in Los Angeles between D'Lo and the Lakers, but I was mistaken. Getting back to your point though, Kawhi is the type of player that you wait on and you wait for, and even though they struck out, it was the right decision. I think Danny Green is a huge addition, but I think something that's flying under the radar and is going to be tremendously valuable for the Lakers 
is this offseason of rest that LeBron's had. He's just been sitting on the couch, sipping some vino, watching the playoffs, and he's going to come back next season ready to go. You know, are we sure that LeBron is as well rested as we think? Because shooting a movie is very hard to work, Kelly. And and he is doing Space Jam too. So those are long hours on a, on a set, you know, getting sure that making making sure every take is right, doing all the green screen stuff with to make sure that Bugs Bunny looks good and everything. I think it's a lot harder than uh than you're saying it's it is. He's gotta save his legs because all I'm seeing these days is him in layup lines at his son's basketball tournaments, throwing down like reverse tomahawks. So hopefully LeBron can just go back to the hyperbaric chamber and just, you know, relax a little bit. That's just, you know, that's just his own pride of everyone saying, oh, is Bronny Jr. as good as LeBron at his age and all these other prospects? This, this is LeBron just, just going out to remind his kid, hey, I'm still the best one in this family. Like, hey, you may be good, you may be dunking now, but you're Nice little two-handed dunks are no match to the king. I don't want to turn this podcast into like a middle school basketball evaluation. And I've only seen highlights, but watching Bronny James play, knowing that he is just entering high school, LeBron's his father, so obviously the expectations are sky high, but that kid has a chance to be special. That's the crazy thing is that he's starting ninth grade this fall. He's going to go to Sierra Canyon in california which is i think that's where he's gonna be playing with uh zaire wade right Dwayne wade's kid so that's the banana boat junior team they uh but honestly the one of the best parts about all these videos of Bronny is seeing lebron on the sidelines celebrating and realizing that yes he's a fantastic basketball but he's also a dad and just seeing the the pride that he takes in his son playing basketball i think that's very relatable because we've we've seen that before in our aau games but it's different when it's maybe the greatest basketball player ever is responding that way yeah and i mean moving to los angeles was definitely a business decision but it was also a decision for his family and it is helping to set up his son for you know a good high school college and hopefully professional career yeah but looking at the clippers david we've had about a month now to let this marinate What are your thoughts and feelings on kind of the Paul George, Kawhi Leonard tandem moving forward? When it first happened, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it's happened. Kawhi's the greatest recruiter ever. He controls the league. He's now like, he controls everything. No one expects like he's the man. But the more that I think about it, Paul George is coming off not one, but I think two shoulder surgeries. And he may not be ready for the start of the season and has battled his own injury concerns. It feels like Kawhi's career from now on is going to be that load management, play 60 games to get ready for the playoffs. You know, this seems like a great combination on paper, but are we sure that they're going to be able to play enough games together to maximize their potential? I'm really interested by that point as well because... These are two guys with incredible injury histories. And Paul George has had both shoulders operated on this summer. So what type of player is he going to come back as? Is Kawhi Leonard healthy? Like We saw him limping around the entire playoffs. He definitely performed at a high level, 
but it was also pretty obvious that something was wrong with him. It looked like a knee or maybe that same quad that was bothering him in San Antonio and then part of this season in Toronto with all that load management. But then on top of all of that, I mean, I think they're going to fit very well together, but if they're not on the court at the same time, just getting that chemistry and, and getting on the same page, that could be challenging as well. And then also, as much as we all love the surrounding players on the on, on the Clippers, it is different with the expectations being like a, of a championship. We love Pat Beverly. We love Montrez Harrell. We love Landry Shamit, Zubac. But it's different when it's championship or bust now, almost, in terms of being a success, because those guys are great players, but they're we thought very highly of them as, you know, Lou Williams when they're like first round exit darlings, like, oh, can they get the upset? But it's a lot different when are these guys who you can really rely on in these East in the Western Conference Finals and NBA Finals, and time will tell if they're able to step up to the challenge of being real contributors on a championship level team, not just a playoff team. Right, because that that step up from good to great is a lot tougher than mediocre to good. So those guys contributing on a, you know, 46, 48 win team, that's well and all, but it's a totally different beast when you're trying to win 60 games and play in the Western Conference finals and for their sake, hopefully the finals. So that will be interesting to kind of keep an eye on and see how that develops. One team that I just want to talk about and give a quick little shout out to the New Orleans Pelicans. David Griffin is great at his job. AD was unhappy, and rarely are you better off when you trade a top seven talent, but I think the Pelicans are. I mean, they traded for Lonzo, Josh Hart, Brandon Ingram. I mean, they draft Jackson Hayes, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, and this is not even to mention Zion Williamson, who they drafted as well. Like any other team that just drafts Zion, that and that's their offseason, A+. And they also signed J.J. Redick. So I just think the transformation that New Orleans has made over the past, I mean, really six months, because six months ago, Anthony Davis is wearing T-shirts at the stadium, Looney Tunes, that's all folks, and people are making a mockery of the New Orleans Pelicans, and now we sit here at the end of July, and I think there's not a team in the NBA whose future is brighter than the Pelicans. That's a bold statement, but uh, because, yes, Griffin did did a great job of getting a return for Davis. And I, I will give him credit for capitalizing on Derek Favors because the Utah had to get rid of him for the salary to sign Bogdanovich. But to give him credit for getting Zion isn't really like... He didn't do anything for that. It was They, they, they got lucky and, and won the lottery. And time will tell. It's, it's the same question of with the Thunder. He, so he got all these picks... And now the real test to his job is what is he going to do with them? Because Josh Hart is a nice piece, but I don't really think of that as a big component of that trade. Lonzo needs to stay healthy and prove that he can play. I really like him, but he needs to stay on the court. And the same thing with Ingram with the blood clots. Uh, that's a serious, serious health thing where you don't know necessarily where he's going to be because Chris Bosh had to retire from that type of condition. And if Ingram's able to play... He's up for a big contract next year. The first big decision that David Griffith to make is, are we going to pay Brandon Ingram? I still think Brandon Ingram has superstar potential. He's 6'10". He can handle the rock. He can shoot. He can play make. A lot of it is still in theory, and it's yet to be realized. 
But I think all the ingredients are there for him to be a special player who, I mean, Andrew Wiggins is making $30 million a year. I, Brandon Ingram, is it that crazy that he's going to get paid that much? Probably not. And would I want to pay him, given what I've seen so far, that much money? Probably not. But I think there is room for growth there. And the chance to pair, like, think about it. Brandon Ingram doesn't have to be LeBron James if he's playing next to Zion Williamson. Brandon, Brandon Ingram, if he can be a Chris Middleton type, that's probably good enough, right? True, but you don't want to have to pay him like a Chris Middleton yet, you know? Like, that's the thing is that you, the, the hard part is that you're going to be paying him so much more money than necessarily what his role would dictate he earn, right? The benefit for the Pelicans of getting all of these guys when they're so young and on their rookie contracts is you have their bird rights. So when you look at guys like Lonzo and Josh Hart and Brandon Ingram, you can pay these guys what their market value is and not as long as your ownership is not too concerned about paying the luxury tax, which might be a concern of, of Gal Benson and the Pelicans, that could be an issue. But assuming that she's okay to go semi-deep into her pockets, they can they can build a really, really solid roster that's going to be good for the next you know eight to 10 years. Although in the NBA, the future is like two or three, so you don't even want to think that far ahead. Yeah, that's been the biggest thing about this offseason. I think Zach Lowe might have said this, and I totally agree, which is that there is no more planning for the long term. There is no more grand, like, hey, we're going to have these two guys for the next seven years. It is, you basically, if you have a superstar, like, you have to do anything you can to win in those next two years. Like, would it completely shock you if James Harden, if they don't win it again this year, if James Harden comes out and says that he's unhappy and he wants to trade to a, con- to a better contender? Like, that wouldn't shock you, right? Not at all. No. Like, it feels like the car... It feels like it feels like Carl Towns is the next one to who's going to be unhappy and demand a trade. That's just what all the rumors have been. I don't know if that's because people think that he just wants to leave Minnesota, or if there's some already some grumblings about his unhappiness. But you're talking about all these picks with New Orleans and all, and all these young guys. I, I would I wouldn't go as far to say that they're definitely lined up for success because you just it's just been proven you you can never predict anything in the NBA anymore. And they're also playing in the Western Conference, so that certainly plays against them as well. But I just think David Griffin deserves a pat on the back for the transformation he's made over the past six months in New Orleans just because half a year ago it looked like Elvin Gentry was out of a job and the Pelicans were, you know, one of those teams looking to get shipped off to Seattle and now they're one of the most exciting teams in the league. But we've been super positive so far, David. Time to go hop on the other side of the fence. Who are some of your losers this offseason? So, I mean, the easy one to say is the Knicks. Not getting Durant, not getting Kawhi or Anthony Davis or Zion or Kyrie. And they got Julius Randle, Reggie Bullock, and I don't even know, Bobby Portis. and uh, Taj Gibson. And Taj Gibson. How how could you ever forget? But uh, they are in a weird spot because when you look at those contracts, it's okay. Those, those aren't that bad because they're all basically one year deals with a team option for the second year, except for Julius Randall, where you say to yourself, okay, it's just one year. They take a flyer on these guys. It'll bring some professionalism to a young team. 
and they'll be bad again, but they have their pick and we'll see who they get in this year's draft and they'll have cap space for next summer. But it's the same idea of holding out hope for the next free agency for some superstar to decide to play for the Knicks when it's been proven that no one will come to the Knicks. It is such a bad situation that no superstar wants to take it upon themselves to go try to win there. And it gives, you know, give, give Carmelo a lot of credit for doing that back in the day of re-signing with the Knicks. He doesn't get enough credit, even though because he turned out pretty poorly for him. But I think that's a concern a lot of these players have that they see what's happened to Carmelo after leaving the Knicks. He can't even get another contract. Yeah, I mean, the Knicks are comedy at this point. That cast of characters who you said, they're basically kicking the can down the road until free agency next year, and then that'll turn into the year after next, and that's just kind of how it goes with the Knicks. But they've basically been irrelevant since Ewing and then before that it's you got to go back to like Willis Reed in the 60s and 70s they and their fans have this mentality that they're like this big bully on the block and meanwhile they've just been mediocre for decades and it also is a gut punch for them that now their stepbrother in Brooklyn has two of the top probably five most marketable players in the league not best but most marketable and Midway through the season, they trade away their seven foot three unicorn, thinking they're getting both, and then they jump ship and head to go play for the Nets. So I just think until Jim Dolan sells the team, this team is just going to be a dumpster fire. The thing that I love about it too, as as a Knicks fan and begging Dolan to sell the team, is that you're begging some guy to make five to six billion dollars because that's what he would probably get for selling the team, and so. Would you ever feel bad for someone or hate someone so more? Because you're begging someone, please, James, please make the sound business advice of selling your team for $6 million. I just think it's hilarious because here he is an owner worth billions of dollars and he's being alienated by his own fans. Like, Jim, when are you going to get the message? Sell the team. Yeah. And there's, there's only so much you can do when it's ownership based because... You can't fire the owner. And so one of my other losers of this offseason is, can I say that somehow Kevin Durant is, is a loser? Is that a hot take? I think that is a hot take. So he leaves the Warriors. First of all, he has a torn Achilles, so that's a tough situation. He leaves the Warriors, probably one of the best organizations in the NBA currently. Mm-hmm. Got to be in the top five. And he goes to Brooklyn, which is a blooming team blossoming team made a nice run in the playoffs great gm people like their head coach kenny atkinson and he signs with them right and but he was going with Kyrie. now here's how he's the loser in this because he's not playing this year and after seeing what Kyrie did to boston last year are we sure Kyrie won't do the same thing to brooklyn My concern is that they are two friends who decide to live together and they realize that they are better if just being friends without having to live together or being roommates. And I don't, I think that the Kyrie factor of the team chemistry could really hurt Durant because then Durant's going to come back and he's going to have to deal with Kyrie. Like he won't be able to do anything from the sideline to stop, to prevent Kyrie from hurting the team. 
Another thing that I didn't really think was a great look for KD was it was just reported recently that Sean Marks, the Nets general manager, found out that Kevin Durant was coming to Brooklyn through his Instagram account. Like KD and Rich Kleiman, KD's agent, didn't even communicate the message to the Nets front office. Basically just announced it on Instagram and, you know, take that how you will. But that seems to me to indicate that Kevin Durant is maybe more invested in his relationship with Kyrie Irving than the team he's going to play for, the Brooklyn Nets. And, you know, the Nets, like the Rockets, I think there's a lot of variance in terms of how good they can be. And this season without Kevin Durant is going to be a struggle, but we'll see. The My concern is, too, is that it's Durant is also, by all accounts, a weird, moody guy, just like Kyrie. And putting two moody people together, I think it has a chance to be a huge disaster. And Kyrie will definitely get blamed for it, too. But then Durant will also get blamed for seemingly not making his own decision, right? Is that he'll be seen as, if it doesn't work out, he just followed Kyrie. He wasn't his own man. He couldn't make his own decision. He just wanted to follow Kyrie and play with his friend. And then he'll get blamed for making the bad decision and not evaluating all the options. My final loser, I mean, there's other losers, but the last one I want to talk about is the Hornets. And I've already kind of gone in on them for letting Kemba walk and then bringing in Terry Rozier. But I mean, with Kemba gone and Jeremy Lamb now gone, my question is just how bad is this team going to be? I do not even think they're worth the price of admission. They have some decent role players like Michael Kidd Gilchrist and Marvin Williams. And I mean, Nicholas Batum's a fine player, but his contract is an albatross. With this group, you are not winning much. And I think the Hornets went from respectability and borderline playoff team to the clear cut worst team in the NBA this offseason. How can you defend them giving Terry Rozier $60 million? You can't. I, I don't have the words to attempt to defend that because it's indefensible and they're going to be really bad and there's just nothing to do about it because they don't have any assets. They don't have anything to trade. It's, oh, you didn't want to give Kemba the Supermax. Well, why'd you give Rogier $60 million in return? Like that makes no sense whatsoever. I used this analogy before, but I want to use it again just because I think it's very applicable. When Michael Jordan decided not to give Kemba Walker the Supermax, he essentially foreclosed on a $100,000 Porsche and opted for a $60,000 Honda Accord. And that Honda Accord is Terry Rozier. Terry Rozier is not winning you any games, but by signing him, you give off the vibe that you're trying to compete when in reality you're not. All you're really doing is stunting the growth of Malik Monk and Miles Bridges. It just it doesn't make sense to me, and it's one of the most inexplicable moves in the entire offseason. No. And you talk about being a really bad owner with James Dolan. I think Michael Jordan has to get scrutinized a little more in terms of his player evaluations because he's proven to not be that great at it throughout the years. And so let's just add the Hornets to the list of teams in the – lottery this year who, who who's gonna be the top pick james wiseman anthony edwards cole anthony some guy we never heard of from europe yet you know they're gonna be holding out for 14 percent, right 14 percent in a deal with jordan is gonna be the uh the starting point yeah exactly right all right dave you got anything else 
nothing yet. We're just looking forward to football season starting up. According to Coach Pat Shermer, our our guy Daniel Jones is, by all accounts, incredible. He might be the greatest football player to ever play the game. the The amount that he can do in training camp is, I guess, has never before been seen by him. So that makes me very excited. I'm still holding out hope that Daniel Jones starts Week One. I know it's unlikely, especially given the dearth of offensive talent he has around him now that Sterling Shepard broke his thumb, Corey Coleman tore his ACL, we've got Golden Tate taking fertility pills, he's out the first four games. Yeah. Thought Saquon Barkley had a lot on his plate last season, wait till you see this season. But when your top targets are Benny Fowler and Cody Latimer, it might be good to start the veteran. Yeah, I mean, Kelly, too. Do you have some football pads? Because you, you, you got great hand-eye coordination. You're 6'5". Maybe you could be a wide receiver for the Giants just, just to try out. I feel like they might at least return my call, right? But they might, they might be more interested in you, David. I mean, 6'9", basically treats you like a taller Plaxico Burst. Just throw it up and you'll go get it. You know, I, I don't help the Giants with the injury concerns yet. I'm, I'm not fully cleared yet. So I'll happily take the offer, but I'll be over there with Sterling Shepard getting on the treatment table david the people that listen to this that you know have never really seen us i, I don't think we've ever spoke of our height before so i'm like i'm about six five maybe six six on a good day you're like six nine right yeah about six nine six ten probably yeah so we got we got some height on this podcast so uh we do see us walking in the streets uh you know we're probably a little bit taller than you think the giants can take anybody right right now daniel jones has to have someone to throw to because eli's pretty good at throwing it to the other team so I mean, heck, David, you could you could probably play for the Hornets this year. That I wouldn't be that bad about. Make five hundred grand, and even though I have to live in Charlotte, you still make five hundred grand. NBA lifestyle would be great. Pot on the road, maybe get MJ as a guest. Now that would be something. That'll do it for this episode of the Double Double. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you wouldn't mind, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Five stars would be much appreciated. If you have any feedback for the show, good, bad, or indifferent, you can email us at double double four zero two at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us. Our Twitter account is DBL underscore DBL podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Take care and make it a great day.